Welcome everyone, you're now listening to A Healthy Obsession, the podcast covering soccer culture from around the world. My name's Adam Thurwell, the show is brought to you by Small Goal Soccer. Today's guest is Eric Samuelson, the former CEO and chairman of AFC Wimbledon. We're going to be talking about the club's rise from the ashes after the club was franchised to a new town in 2004. We're going to have Eric telling us all about how the club was formed, their highs, their lows, the promotions, and new ground, and loads of other parts of Eric's journey in football. It's really fascinating. We're going to get into the show now. We appreciate everyone listening. As always, cheers. Eric, why don't you kick us off, just tell us a little bit about just your background um, in football, how you got into football in the first place, some of those uh, early years getting into the game. Yeah, sure. Um, I um, I was born in the northeast of England, up 50 miles from the Scottish border in a, in a city called Sunderland, which is a very strong football tradition. Uh, and so I used to stand behind the goal, which is where people did when I was a kid, watch my team, the lads as they were known. All of them for many years, but I became, I trained to be an accountant and um, decided the best place to do that was London. Settled here, my wife came down and joined me temporarily 45 years ago. Um, we had our two children and they expressed, our boys, they expressed interest in football and we ended up going to our most local team. Rather than me trying to force Sunderland down their throats nearly 300 miles away, <laughs> um, I thought, let's watch the local team. and. I don't know about other people, but I can't watch a game without deciding I want one team or the other to win. It's just, I can't. There's no point watching if you don't want someone <laughs> to win. Um, and preferably the underdog, because I don't know that's a particularly British thing. We always think it is, but preferably. And the club we selected was um, Wimbledon FC. And its history is quite long, but it was found... The English football structure is that there are four divisions, 92 clubs in total, and collectively, they're known as the Football League or the league. And below that is known as non-league. Uh, they've given it better marketing names now, like the national game, but it, everybody calls it non-league. So Wimbledon were non-league from 1889 to 1977. That's what, 88 years. And they became a very powerful non-league club. And in those days, you could get into the league, but you had to be voted in. In 1977, they were voted into the league in a tiny let's be honest, run-down, dilapidated stadium, which was a non-league stadium. Um, but within 10 years, they'd gone up to the highest level of what is now known as the Premier League, been rebranded since they got into it. And a year later, they won the National F Challenge Cup competition, the FA Cup, which at the time in particular was a particularly valuable one to win. It's been a bit devalued in more recent years. But so this little club on a tiny budget in a rickety old stadium, um, got pretty well to the top and, and was going and bloodying the noses of Manchester United, Liverpool, Arsenal, all the big names that I expect anyone with a passing interest in football to have heard. And it was wonderful. You know, and, and I got sucked into it. You can't, it went from let's go to a game, let's go to a, let's have a season ticket for home games to let's go to every away game. I couldn't go without getting drawn into it. And so the, the ultimate heresy in England, I gave up my other football team, Sunderland, and I became a Wimbledon supporter. That's how I got involved. Uh, meanwhile, work-wise, I became a partner um, in what's P PwC, it became PwC, which is um, global, so um, many people have heard of it. Um, and I, through that, because of my chance, I'll step back a bit. Wimbledon, um, there was a major disaster in Britain in England in 1988, I think it was, 87, 89. 
when 90 odd people were killed at a football game at Hillsborough, the Sheffield ground. And in the light of that, the government imposed a review and all stadiums in the top two tiers had to be all-seater and the old one couldn't be. So to cut a long story short, it already is quite long. Um, the stadium was sold by the then owner and we went and camped in somebody else's stadium in Southeast London, Wimbledon being Southwest London. Um, and effectively that made us uh, a sitting target for anybody who was interested in taking over the club. So um, a town about 60 miles north of London called Milton Keynes, they wanted a football club. They didn't want to start at the very bottom like Wimbledon FC did um, because they wanted to build a hypermarket and there were planning regulations that meant you needed, couldn't do the hypermarket without a football stadium. Um, so they cast around for somebody to buy and bring in and Wimbledon were obviously vulnerable. So they sought to move uh, Wimbledon to Milton Keynes. It's a long story around that, but in the end, they were given permission to do so. And the fans said, we're not having that. Well, the reason for this, I think, is that, and this may be a, a too sweeping, but by and large, I see American uh, baseball, um, uh, American football clubs as being businesses, franchises that move where it is perhaps more profitable to move. If the local um, government will build you a stadium, well, you might well go there. Um, it's the other way around in England, where traditionally the football clubs are the heart of the community and vice versa. And running them as a business is a relatively recent um, feature. So the idea of a football club being uprooted and moved 60 miles is, is just, it's just unheard of. Um, and it's a nightmare for a football fan because football clubs belong in their community. I think it's really important to understand that because I know it's different in the States. I'm not knocking who it's done, but it's not what we do. So when we refer to Milton Keynes, they call themselves Milton Keynes Dons because we're Wimbledon, the Dons. Um, they're actually referred to as the franchise by most of our fans when they're being polite. And franchise is a derogatory term. And the fans said, we're not traveling 60 miles to watch a team with a different strip, different kit. Um, different name, different players, different management, different everything. We're not doing that. We belong in the community. We are starting again. And that's where the idea of AFC Wimbledon was born. And four guys who were long-term supporters of the football, Wimbledon FC, said, well, let's just do it. And they did. And I was, <clears throat> for reasons I won't go into, I was quite close to them. And being an accountant at a big city firm, I said, you need a finance director. Um, that could be me, that should be me. And I think they thought quite realistically, it would do no harm to have somebody who's a partner in a big city firm working for us to give us some credibility in sustainability and financial terms. So partly because I think we got on well, but partly because they're just being pragmatic, I got the job. And that's how I became the finance director of AFC Wimbledon and five years later, the chief executive. I won't answer all your questions as long as that, but um, that's that's the broad history of who I am, how I got to where I am, and AFC Wimbledon being born. Uh, and tell us a little bit more about, I mean, I, I remember it happening at the time and I remember the uproar, but just tell us about sort of the, the emotions and the feelings uh, around the club once the franchise mm. purchase had happened of Wimbledon. What was the fallout like? It was... It was um, 
they were very fortunate that they didn't try and take over one or two of the London clubs where the fans' reaction would have been downright violent. We had run a quite sophisticated opposition campaign. And, and I think it's fair to say that Wimbledon fans, actually a survey showed that Wimbledon fans have the best educational qualifications of any club at the top tier, or they did at the time. Mm. So all you had was a fairly well-educated group of fans who were outraged by what was being done. It was, you know, the, the British like to talk about fair play and all that stuff. It wasn't. And also, football is a very tribal thing. Um, I guess, it, I, I don't know to what extent, in the States, people travel to away games to, watch, to support their team. It's a hell of a distance to have to do it. <laughs> it's what you do in England. You know, it's absolutely nothing to get in a car and drive 250 miles for a game and then drive back again. I've been absolutely thrashed. Uh, <laughs> totally, you know. I've, I've, been on, I've been on a few of those trips from, back, back, from, oh, yeah. uh, back from Carlisle on a Tuesday night after being beat 3-0 was a, a memorable one. <laughs> At Manchester City, we lost 4-0 on a Tuesday night. Somebody smashed in the back of our car in the secure parking area. Oh. And we had to drive home. Uh, you know, but this is, as somebody said, there's no point having a team unless you suffer some pain. Mm. I don't know, you may not agree with it, but the, the sheer pleasure of overcoming the odds, especially when you're a little club, um, makes up for the pain. In fact, you need a bit of pain in order to really enjoy the pleasure, they would argue. Perhaps that applies to things wider than football. We'll leave it in football alone. So the, the people reacted very badly, but what was fantastic was it so happened that the Independent Supporters Association, the fan club of the football club, had a meeting two days after the announcement. And at that meeting, it was a complete it was a watershed. There was a very passionate speech made by one of the founders saying, basically, I don't want to fight anymore. I don't want to do any of this anymore. I just want to watch some football. <laughs> the place erupted. And what they didn't know, they then voted to form a football club. What they didn't know is these four guys had already done it. <laughs> um, they hadn't waited. They, in two days, it formed a football club, got registered with the relevant association, um, and, did also, and found a place to play. They were a complete, the, the energy was unbelievable. And I was chilling in their wake saying, I don't want to record all this. I'm just a finance guy. And what do you need to run a football club? Because one of us had the faintest idea. We were your classic startup with all we knew was we wanted to watch some football. Um, but we weren't a classic startup. We didn't know a thing. <laughs> Off we went. And so the, the energy that was the anger was quite swiftly challenged into something really positive. Um, and I think that's one of the wonderful things about it, you know. Um, out of the darkness came, came light. Is that a biblical saying? Anyway, whatever. Um, it really did. And it captured the imagination of the press. You know, that meeting two days later, three, two national broadcasters were there filming it. The place was packed to the rafters, people listening outside. Um, and that energy just continued and got us going. It was a wonderful feeling. I find it interesting, the comparison you make between the, the club being sort of reborn if you will and starting over to a startup business and a company because a lot of the things that would have gone into it I'm sure in the beginning was very similar just to any startup business where you're kind of sticking and moving and just figuring things out as you go along what Absolutely. was that like in the in the beginning and, and how did you formalize it to where it probably went from being a bit rock and roll and kind of winging a little bit to formalizing it to uh, make it something that there's longevity so it didn't just fade away really quickly. 
Well, well, you're quite bound by the rules and regulations of the league you want to join. So there's a, but, but I mean, uh, the best example I can give of how informal it was when we started was that one of the founders rang up a man I've come to know and like very much one day and said, you're a big lump. We think you should be head of security. <laughs> that was it. He had no experience, he had nothing. And that was, <laughs> that's, um, perhaps at the extreme, but that's the sort of approach that was taken. I love it. it looking back at it, it was, it's extraordinary, really. But I, I, think, I think possibly, um, you had four different characters. You had the great strategist, um, with one guy. Another was a commercial man. If, it's, if it moves, put an advert on it. You know, let's, and he helped bring in, uh, with the other guy, bring in a shirt sponsorship that the scale of the money is hard to explain, but in, but um, typically um, we, we got, trying to convert into dollars, and I, we got a shirt sponsorship of about $50,000 in our first year and then 40,000 for the two successive years. And it, at a time when the average income from clubs at the level we started was under $20,000. <laughs> um, because we had 3,000 supporters, we you know, that turned up regularly and actually and more than 3,000 supporters, but the average number of people that turned up was 3,000. So, and I think probably one of the things I brought to it was more structure. But I also learned that going from a big multinational where you have, and I don't mean this in any way disrespectfully, but you have people who are so motivated and so professionally trained that when I asked my manager to do something, it just, I never chased him, it got done. Mm. When you're dealing with volunteers who tend to veer towards what they're good at rather than what you ask them to do, you have to manage them rather differently. And similarly, I created some suggested smart objectives for the directors. That was very interesting. They got put in a drawer and they never got looked at again. And I learned that actually when you're dealing with a small business and it's turnover in the first year, you call it, you call it income in the States? Anyway, um, its total income in the first year was under half a million dollars. You do things differently and that, so it changed me or I changed myself but I did introduce some rigor we had some financial controls we stopped everybody going on spending things we um but we couldn't stop some other stuff that the, the the club's mascot is the womble it's a children's story um about this benevolent animal that wanders around the local common picking up rubbish for the good of everybody and a group of fans bought an old ambulance named it the wombulance started buying and uh, making uh, merchandise in our name without asking us and selling us at games. You, know, you, had, you had to rein that in. Yeah. So while it was chaotic, it was, it was done with a good intent. And that was, the, that was the thing about it. The intention was good. So it took a while, but we got there. And how is the club structured now? So I think that's a lot of people are going to be interested in that because we hear about, you know, the Glazer family owned Manchester United and uh, Liverpool are owned in a certain way. But how is a supporter owned club and a community owned club structured in comparison? They're all a little bit different. Ours um, had a strange beginnings because before the move was sanctioned to Milton Keynes, before in fact it really became a, a real thing. Um, there's an organisation in the UK called Supporters Direct, which is designed to help fans get involved in clubs and possibly own them, whatever fits best. And we had formed um, the AF, the Wimbledon FC Supporters Association, I forgot, football club, etc., mm. uh, which was designed to have influence on Wimbledon FC. But within three months, they'd been hived off to Milton Keynes 
And within a month of that, they were asked if they'd like to buy this club that these four founders had formed. So they went from being a nine-man, nine-person board, trying to run a, a, an influencing body, to being in charge of a football team. Hmm. Nonetheless, that structure that was created in order for, it's known as the Don's Trust, Wimbledon, as I said, um, that structure was in place and it created a framework. So if you wanted to be an owner of the Don's Trust, it's basically more like a membership. You pay £25 each year or your share expires and you're one of the three, four or 5,000 people and it owns the football club. So on a day-to-day -day basis, the football club management would run the club, make the decisions, appoint the manager. Um, but it would make sure with the trust, which had a strategic oversight, that, for example, the process for appointing a manager was appropriate and was properly implemented and was, had appropriate expertise put into it. Um, if we wanted to, um, as we did, we wanted to buy the stadium we rented for the first season, you'd go to the Don's Trust board and you'd get their support. So you did that. But when it came to, they'd have no say whatsoever in which players were brought in, who was picked, what the team's strategy was. All they'd have a say was would be, how do we go about it? What's the process? Is it properly managed? And are we achieving our budgets? That sort of stuff. Yeah, and, and that's like, to me, when I think about that, just the, the, the way that, the difference is I can see that there would be challenges in having a supporter own team versus a uh, an individual or a smaller group owning a team where you're more of a, a dictator almost, where you just sort of say, well, this is what we're doing and that's it, like yeah. follow instructions. So uh, what are some of the other challenges over the years? You've overseen the club for uh, a long time. So what have the challenges been going from non-league and, and kind of that run-up and the promotions? What uh, I guess growing pains is what I'm getting after. Like, what are some one, of the growing well, pains? One of the main challenges was the Don's Trust Board itself, because it's an elected body, and people who are well-known tend to be elected, rather than people with the right range of skills. And that meant um, I'd come home after a four-hour meeting one night. After still, I still worked at PwC for the first 18 months, tearing what little hair I've got out, and swearing and kicking the metaphorical cat um, because we'd had an evening discussing the minutiae or the things that people knew about rather than um, what's our strategy for buying a stadium. Mm. Um, so that, and, and gradually over the years, that, that's always been a bit of a problem that you get elected. You don't, you don't automatically get the right range of skills elected to a board. Mm. And that means that there's some friction between the board and the football club management. Um, but having said that, I mean, we got by because um, there's an old adage at PwC that the best people can make rotten systems work while the rotten, poor people can ruin them. We had some good people and we made these ropey systems work um, because we all had the same good intention and good wish. But the real problem with a fan-zoned club is that you don't have a sugar daddy. It's interesting that in these gender neutral times, I've never come across a sugar mummy. It's always, it's always men. Um, so if you're Roman Abramovich, the Russian born owner of Chelsea, or the Glazer family, if necessary, well, Manchester United fans would argue the Glazer family don't put money in, but if necessary, you put money in. Um, if we didn't break even, we didn't have a bank overdraft, we had no facilities. Mm. We just have to go back to the fans and say we need some more. 
So while you're trying to price your admission levels for um, fans, especially to keep people coming who don't have a lot of money, mm. at the same time, you need to have enough money to have a club that's successful enough that they want to come and see a team because people like to see a team that wins more often than loses. So you had that getting that balance is terribly difficult. In the early years, it was a piece of cake because we had an average crowd of 3,000 and our opposition's average crowd was about 60. So, you know, we had money coming out of our ears, but it wasn't very long. Put it into context, if Manchester United, Liverpool, Arsenal are at level one, we started at level nine, um, where you know, we would take to an away game as many fans as that team got in the whole of the rest of the season for its matches, as many paying fans, <laughs> about 1,400. So, you know, they, they loved us in many ways, but they also felt a bit swamped and you know, nobody likes really big pockets. Um, I was going to say it's 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 kind of, it's kind of interesting that you went from this sort of underdog and and obviously the club got moved and had to start over, but then you show up in nine the ninth tier and you're the like sort of big Manchester United of the division. <laughs> absolutely, everybody wants to beat us. And how oh, ironic! I mean, I, I personally made a big point about that in the way I behaved. So, you know, the directors get free access as a boardroom at the clubs you visit, although sometimes it's just a rubbed-off area in a bar at some of the smaller clubs, but it doesn't matter. There's some (laughs) some curled-up sandwiches and uh, a free drink. Um, But I made a point of paying. Why should I take a freebie from a club who get get damn all supporters? I think I should pay. As you get higher up the league, I'm less inclined to be helpful, but certainly the lower levels. And one of the things I thought was testament to us was uh, we started in a club in a league called the Combined Counties, level nine anyway. And we're the only club, the first club from there, that's risen through all the leagues and got into the Football League. And they held a special meeting to present us with an award to commemorate that. Hmm. And it was done, I, I honestly believe, with genuine affection because, all right, we brought lots of money and people enjoyed that, but we were never... Very few people would say that we lauded it because we know what it's like to be David against Goliath mm. um, we really did but it was quite easy in the early years because you know we had we didn't actually need to spend that much money because if you think of the footballers at the level we were at there's probably about 2,000 players across various different leagues and none of them were signed up to contracts or hardly any because if they're any good they'd go to a higher level so you could have the pick of any player you liked and you could get a choice you could come to us Give you a sense, well, give you an example. I was talking to one of our managers the other day. You could come to us and he'd show them a video of a cup tie we played with a stand of 1,800 people, balloons, flags, people cheering. And he'd say, you can come to us and have £100 a week or you can go down the road and have 150 quid a week, but there'll be a crowd of 60 there and nobody want to know you. What do you want? <laughs> so we didn't even pay top whack. We didn't need to. Because... I was talking to a player a little while ago who said he just couldn't get the hang of it. He'd turn up at games and people wanted his autograph. Me? <laughs> there were shirts with his name on the back. That's and, great. You know, they, they absolutely loved it. And of course, they never bought a drink <laughs> after the game. They That's just great. The bar. And because of who we were, we went, we have the UK, but not the European record of unbeaten league games, 78. So, you know, you could go to the bar at the end and you'd know we'd won. Or maybe maybe in a bad day we'd drawn. In our second season, we played 46, won 42, and drew four. You know, it's you don't have very many off days. And so 
it's a, con- it's, it's, it's a constant party and a constant celebration. Huh? <laughs> it is, but personally, I found it boring, you know. Um, <laughs> there was a local journalist wrote an article saying, please, please, could something different happen? I've got nothing else to write about. Could somebody <laughs> go and, can we have a streaker? Oh, you know? yeah, <laughs> yeah, Live in the place up so I can write about something different. And I felt the same way. Uh, that's funny. But we lost eventually. Because um, as you move up the league, it gets tougher. Right. And I, I, in the first year, I did a five-year plan, which showed us being promoted every other year and crowds growing gradually. It was actually, the crowds fell away a bit early on because people realised that after the initial euphoria, football wasn't that great. <laughs> um, but I always thought that the level level five, the one below the four league, the league, mm. would be the hardest to get out of because then you're playing with teams who've dropped out of the league, big teams, teams that proper teams with no disrespect to the others yeah uh, names that most British football fans would look at and think yeah they're a league team mm. but they're temporarily out of it and I didn't know how we could raise the money to do it I really didn't so that was the big issue once we got to it was called the conference um, how do we overcome that and we appointed a lovely lovely man and a football genius as our manager who came to us when we'd been um, plateauing a bit, won us three promotions in four years, basically um, goes out of the conference by having a very young team playing pure football, proper mm. football. None of the, the old Wimbledon FC were known for hit and hoof, it's known as. Just hit it as high and as hard as you can in the opposition penalty area, and <laughs> once in a while it'll drop to you and you'll score. It was the crazy unfair describing it, but... Um, uh, but we played proper, classy football with a very young team. Got to a playoff final. Um, sadly, it couldn't be at Wembley for various reasons. And won on a penalty shootout, um, which I absolutely loved because our manager had had two other clubs who'd got to penalty, two penalty shootouts in the playoffs and lost them both. Hmm. So I've spent as much time watching him during the shootout as watching the, the penalties <laughs> because he must have been in a world of pain. Must have been awful for him. But then we got into the Football League and this chant started up um, um, to the tune of Blue Moon. Nine years, it only took nine years. <laughs> it's one of the songs, it's only us. We went from nothing, no name, no stadium, no manager, no team, no players, uh, nothing, to being in the Football League, back in the Football League, we like to say, because we think we're the true Wimbledon, not that bunch up in Milton Keynes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, over the years, in your position as, as chairman, without going into specifics, was there times when other people or outside groups came in and tried to either purchase the club or offer investment? What, what was that like? Was it a temptation? It was quite or? common. It happened probably four or five times a year. And it would start with an email usually saying, uh, we're just doing investing in the club. And my standard response um, was... By investing, do you mean taking control or do you mean sponsoring the shirt or sponsoring the mm. stadium or uh, putting some money in, to, uh, in, uh, in return for some recognition? Mm. And the answer is always, well, control, of course, to which the answer would be thank you, but no. Mm. We have a nine-point series of objectives where the top three are remain fan-owned, get into the Football League and return to the borough we come from, but let's, for simplicity, return to Wimbledon. Mm. Um, if you take over, that ain't going to happen. And there was one particular example in 2005 years in, 
um, when a guy came along, he was a, a half billionaire, which nowadays is nothing in, mm. in, in ownership terms in English teams. And he came, he'd, he'd been watching a DVD that had been made of us in our first year, and he'd heard the story, and he basically said, I love the story, I'd like to continue it by taking over the club. And, and I said, well, don't you mean discontinue the story, because that's not continuation, you take <laughs> over. Um, what happens to all the volunteers, the fans, everything? And um, we had a quite difficult Don's Trust board meeting where two or three of the members wanted to hear his proposition, but the majority said, they said no. The way we said no was to say, look, we need to have a, have a think about our strategy and we'll come back if you're still interested to talk to us, but we knew he was in a hurry. So effectively he was saying no. They went and bought a different club, which he's been fairly successful at. Um, I'm not mm. knocking him, but you know, he's not in the Premier League. Um, so, and we realised then that actually we, the football club board, or the Don Trust board, were asking the owners, the fans, could have just sold it? So we changed our constitution, our, um, our rules, to set in a number of high hurdles before we could change the name of the club, sell the stadium, sell the club, um, that required a significant majority of members, shareholders in the Don Trust to approve. We could have just done it. The only other one that I particularly remember that tried to buy the club was, um, I've got an email from him somewhere that just ends, Eric, you don't understand, it's just about the money. It's mm -hmm. only about the money. And it isn't for us, and you can call us naive, idealistic, but it isn't. The money is very important, but we're a community club. So you stepped down as the, the CEO, the, the chairman, after multiple promotions, you've left the team of the new ground. What, what do you think is uh, the future in sort of the short term and long term for the club, just as far as you've mentioned there, some of the aims and the philosophy around the club, but it is the goal to um, continue in this push to run up the league and whether that's raising more capital for players or, or, or is it just to be uh, and sustain as a quality league football team? That's, that's a really good question. It's a question we're asking ourselves right now. And ourselves mm. is the owners and, and some other stakeholders. Um, what happened round about, shortly after I went, but, uh, but um, I'm not blaming anybody else, uh, was that we had a crisis, a funding crisis. We had, I had arranged, I got a letter of, a letter of intent from a bank to fund the gap in our financing to build the stadium. Remember, we actually had no money. How we got the money itself was a triumph. Um, offering a space rate plus two and a half percent or something for 15 years, all lovely. But unfortunately, the three Bs absolutely um, stuffed us. That's a club called Bury, who went into liquidation because they couldn't pay their bills. A club called Bolton, who nearly went into liquidation, got relegated as a consequence, and Brexit. Mm. All of those three combined to mean the loans weren't there when we needed them. We couldn't take it when it was offered because we didn't have the stadium to secure it against. By the time we wanted it, it had gone. We ended up with a massive funding gap. And I must admit, I couldn't see how to fill it. We had a fairly noisy, shall we say, meeting of uh, the members. And a group of fans there said, we should just issue a bond. About three years into my time, we'd issued a bond to pay off the debt for when we bought our first stadium. And it was, it's one of the things I'll take credit for, 
my suggestion was choose your own interest rate. Um, capped at 4%, which was a good rate at the time. Mm. But the idea was clear, your arms halfway up your back, you really should say naught. And about 50% of the people who invested chose 0% interest. That's good. This is the same deal. Um, but of course, with now with social media, with much more professional marketing, with a much greater need, with a burning platform around us, we raised $7 million. Nice. Um, on, that, on that bond. And, and what struck me about it mainly, uh, so there's that. The other thing that happened was um, in the middle of the pandemic, it became clear that a lot of people were suffering badly. They couldn't get out. They had no food. Their kids were supposed to be home coaching, but they didn't have laptops. Um, and a group of fans who call themselves the Don's Local Action Group went out and ended up with 13, 1,500 volunteers delivering food parcels, providing laptops, uh, providing connecting and providing furniture. And a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them were Wimbledon fans. So what we had was, when we started, we had a message of absolute despair. You've lost your club. And a group, small group of guys got together. I'm actually not a small group of people. There's plenty of women in there. Um, and made something special happen. And then we got to this new crisis in the middle of a pandemic. And a different group, some overlap of people, stepped in and solved the crisis. Hmm. And it's those people now who are giving all the energy to the club. Um, and I, I think it's wonderful because this, you know, mine's gone. 17 years of doing this and getting old. I'm zapped. But um, there's a new energy about the place and they're currently going through a strategic review. And I suspect the answer will be, I do give long answers, don't I? that we want to be as successful as we can on the pitch, but to be the best community club in the whole of the country. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and uh, I think that's, I'm, I'm guessing where we'll end up, but it's not, it's a very educated guess. Oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah, that's, it's amazing. It's amazing to hear that as well, just the community engagement. And when football is uh, large, coming into an age of, well, it's been in an age of, at the top level of kind of global brand and like sort of mass appeal and going away from these community values that were at the core and the foundation of, of the clubs in the very beginning. It's nice to hear. It's really refreshing to hear that there are teams and, and groups that are so much uh, more driven by community than just, you know, getting a, um, a bigger TV deal or whatever it might be for those clubs at, at that level anyway. So it kind of yeah. brings me on to, to the next point of uh, the, the hot topic at the moment is, is European Super League and some different uh, problems with ownership at the very top level. So just you being someone that's uh, been involved from the beginning of um, the rebirth of, of AFC Wimbledon, seeing what franchising does and what it means to English football teams. What are some of your thoughts on just current, kind of the current state of, of things, just from a supporter point of view, but also as someone that's been part of a, a board and overseen a club as well? Well, yeah, uh, we are still a small club. I mean, our turnover in the year I left was probably six million dollars, six six and a half million dollars. So it's still a small club. And in in the year I left, I think it was that year, um, we played a Premier League club. So we were now at level three. We'd reached thanks to another promotion. Um, we played a Premier League club and we beat them. I mean, that's that's what the FA Cup is all about. You get a chance to play these top teams. You get them at home. You do get on telly. You get some money, but really get a chance for a to bloody the nose of a top team. And we beat. This is West Ham United. We beat them. 
At half time, they brought on a player whose transfer fee was more than the cost of our new stadium, <laughs> or whose transfer fee was equivalent of 15 years of our wages. So that's the disparity between the Premier League, where the real money is, and where clubs, once they get in there, their sole objective is to survive and keep the money coming in. That's all it's about, because they're never going to be on the top four or five, never. Mm. Um, and I, I found that corrosive. And the Premier League does distribute some of its money to lower leagues, but it, but it does so as a, as a sop. It doesn't do so on, a, on any altruistic basis. It's just to keep the government and PR right mm. and um you know it, it, it's I, I find it quite depressing uh i've also it's also turned out that because it's so important not to leave the league not to lose your status um this is my opinion definitely now not a statement of fact a lot of the clubs are there are just trying to stay there and therefore as arsene wenger one of the most famous football managers in england for many years said it's all about defence now so unless you're on the very top teams you don't know how to break down these defences and frankly it's boring hmm. very expensive, extraordinarily skilled these guys are organic geniuses hmm. compared even to the players at our level they genuinely are They're just amazing um, but I don't want to watch it well, that's a personal view um, as to the uproar about the European Super League, which if people don't know, was basically a suggestion that six top English clubs should go off with, I think eventually another dozen um, European teams and form a non-relegation league, which um, closed, which I think is how most major sports in America work, the top level, you can't be relegated. Right. And mm -hmm. extraordinary, in the land of the capitalists, where you have this sort of socialistic thing where everybody has wage caps, which are <laughs> mathema right. <laughs> uh, to many clubs, and you have this idea that I think bottom team gets first pick, this sort of stuff. Right. Yeah, the, opposite, draft, you know? the draft system. Yeah, we have almost the opposite. You know, The more money you've got, the better chance you've got to get best, best players, and it keeps going. Um, but what, what happens as a consequence is uh, you have all these top six teams. And what I find depressing is that so many fans don't care. Mm. You have some clubs who are being sports washed, effectively owned by, effectively owned by a country, right. which is basically improving its image. So the ownership of, of the club and its presence and what it does or were bought on leveraged buyouts, which I think is what the Glazers did at Manchester United. They basically, Manchester borrowed the money for them to pay for Manchester, is how I understand it works. All good business practices, but not in a place where communities, what it's all about. So I'm amazed that it took the suggestion of a European Super League for fans to be up in arms. I'm just amazed why, why uh, that's bad, but everything else that's gone before it is, is worse almost, because it, it's the foundation of it. I can't see it changing uh, because the regulatory authorities have no power in this country and uh, Premier League brings in a lot of money. The government won't be inclined to change it. Um, there's not enough votes in it, I suspect. So I will stick at my level and I think um, I doubt that we'll ever get to be a Premier League club because the investment you need and I'm quite content with that. Well, and it feels like just from people we've talked to over the year or so of doing this show is that there is an appetite for people in the UK are looking down the lower leagues to go to something where they feel like they're a little bit more a part of something versus 100 pound tickets. Obviously, no one's in the grounds at the moment, but 100 pound tickets. 
15 pound beers or whatever it is you know and it's an expensive day out where you can go and watch your local team and it's affordable you feel like you're part of something you know people there and your voice is actually heard <clears throat> versus you know being sort of just another number at a, a Manchester United or a Liverpool or whatever it might be absolutely I mean at Tottenham Hotspur they built a startlingly uh, impressive new stadium and one of the things you can do I've not been there but as I read it you can be in the sort of the equivalent of um, an aquarium and you can look through a glass wall watch the players come out and sort of see them sweating as they leave at <laughs> half time so they come out down the players tunnel you can come to our game and have a drink with them after the game yeah, so you can watch brilliant. them up on stage being interviewed at the Man of the Match Award which is not done in front of the sponsors done in front of as many fans as can pack into the um, bar um, and listen to them being uh, peppered with completely inappropriate questions by one of our founders um, and you know and you can you can you'll probably you can stop them in the car park and have a chat and uh, it still works that way i don't think it would work if we're in the premier league and i'd never been to a non-league game until we formed my children had they, they love football too uh, i love the environment and the the fact that you've got to be careful what you say because the players can hear every word as soon as you're on the ground uh, I, I just love it and the, you know the, the cheaply produced program stale pies and everything. It's an extraordinary atmosphere and huge fun. And that sounds patronizing. It's not. I absolutely loved it. That was brilliant. Back to, I suppose, I suppose this is one of the problems. It's taking me back to my childhood of standing behind the goal. Um, and I think in some ways, my attitude to modern football is that of a classically grumpy old man. <laughs> it's not like it used to be. Definitely. I don't want it. To, I don't want it to be all like it used to be, but 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 some of the community stuff will be will be welcome. So yeah, before we let you go, you've got a new book coming out this year. Uh, tell us a little bit about what that process has been like and exactly what the book's going to be about. Um, years ago, I read a book by a, a self-confessed journeyman footballer, a guy called Gary Nelson. Um, Twenty-five years ago, I think. And what really impressed me about it was that. He didn't talk about what's now called the Galactico stuff. Didn't talk about what it's like to be managed by top manager because he'd never been that way. Um, he uh, and but he talked about the day-to-day -day life of being a footballer, and that absolutely fascinated me. Mm. Absolutely fascinated. And then he wrote a foot sequel about the day-to-day -day life of being a manager of a completely unsuccessful club. Um, they really were down at the bottom of the fourth tier. And again, that was great. And I thought, I don't think I've ever seen anybody write the equivalent about a club from the perspective of the chief executive. Yeah, definitely. Especially That's interesting. Being so hands on at. Mm. And the other thing I wanted to do, but this is not uh, an autobiography. It is, I wrote it myself. I didn't want it to be as told to a journalist. Mm. I wanted it to be my voice for better or worse. People have to judge that. But I wanted to make the point that. Um, it's me and a couple of the founders who get all the publicity, who get the names, who are the, you know, the, the name checks. But actually, there's hundreds of people served together to make this club what it is. And some of their stories need to be told, along with the exploits on the pitch. But it doesn't, as I said in the introduction, if you wanted a description of the game and how high the net billowed when our striker scored the winning penalty in the playoffs, you won't get that. But if you want to know what he was thinking when he walked up to take it, yeah, that's brilliant. I'll tell you that. Because mm. that's what you don't get as a fan. And I know because I asked him. And I've interviewed 80 people. Um, 
Not only our own, I interviewed the manager of the losing penalty shootout team. Find out what it's like to go on the rear end of it. I talked to the people on the local council who quietly fought in the background to help us get planning permission to build our new stadium back in Wimbledon. Um, and I put it all together and clearly, you know, uh, I, I appear in it sometimes, but it's about the story of a community going from well, creating a Phoenix club um, and making it something that we've all had reason to be proud of from the very beginning, but look at it now. And now that we're in a brand new stadium back in our home, only 200 meters from the old ground. Um, we've got a fantastic foundation to become an exemplar of what a community club can be. Uh, I think it's a great story. It's called All Together Now because I named every chapter after a pop song in one of my moments of boredom. And the title it's song... The farm. It's by The Farm. Uh, I actually was basing it on one of the Beatles' worst songs. Uh, <laughs> there you go. from Yellow Submarine. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and you can tell how old I am from the sort of songs that I use in the song. <laughs> but what I discovered about The Farm song is there's a famous story, I don't know if the American listeners will know, but in the middle of World War One on Christmas Day, they stopped fighting and played football. And no that's what won. the song is about, yeah. which, I, which is real serendipity, I suppose. Hmm. So it's called All Together Now, and um, it's just come out in the UK. Uh, and it's a genuine good news story. That's what it's meant to be anyway. That's brilliant. And when are you expecting it out in the US? I think September-ish. September. And, and it's available through Pitch Publishing, correct? That's right, yeah. Uh, so, so anyone that wants to follow along, it's pitchpublishing.co.uk, I believe is the website. Yep. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, and um, it'll be launched, whatever quite that means. I've never written a book before and, and never will again, but it'll be launched in the US. Um, it's not going to require a book tour, sadly. I was, I was going to say, are you going to be on the book tour, the New York and the LA stops? That's a, that's a, that's a glamorous view, mate. Now you've uh, stepped down and as the chairman, you get on the book tour. Well, I, w- I would love to. I mean, I've read lots of stories about how you go to the local radio station and they clearly haven't read the book. <laughs> and you get asked the same questions. It's 400 pages. Why would they read it more than they've got a <laughs> program to put out every day? But um, I love the States. I love coming. We were talking before this started about, about my, um, how I'd love to actually travel from northeast to southwest someday uh, by Winnebago or something. Um, but no, it's, um, well, it would be nice to be asked. Let's just leave it there. there yeah, there you go. Exactly. Well, uh, congratulations on everything, mate. I've been quietly uh, cheering AFC Wimbledon along all these years just because of, Thank you. of what happened. And I think a lot of football fans were in the same. I'm sure you've been, it's been voiced to you over the years, but I think there's been a lot of people just quietly in the background cheering along. And it's, it's great to see back back in the league and, and congratulations on an amazing job. It's taken, a, am sure, a lot of hard work and perseverance, but I'm, I'm sure the payoff's been ten, tenfold. <laughs> Uh, it's been an act of love, really, and an right. obsession, as all football is, if you're really into it. So, but thank you, thank you very much, and and on behalf of the two hundred odd people who actually made it happen, thank you. Yeah, just... uh, uh, excellent, mate. Well, listen, Eric, we'll let you go. It's been amazing talking to you, and we'll get you back pleasure. on maybe after the book comes out in the states. I'm going to grab a copy and have a read, and then maybe get you back on the show to talk about it. I'd love to. Okay. Excellent. Cheers, Eric. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Alright everybody, that is it. It's the end of today's show. I want to thank everyone for tuning in and checking out A Healthy Obsession. We're back on Tuesday with a weekly show. And a big thank you to Eric for coming on. 
Get with us in the meantime at healthyobsession.soccer. And until the next time, be safe, be well. Cheers.